if you've been with us um, at all the last uh, few months, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation together, studying this great triumph of the Lamb. And today we're coming to chapter 13. I feel like every week I'm saying this is the most controversial chapter in the book, but this one I think really is. Um, And so we'll get to hear it read uh, by Blair Bigelow. So she'll be reading um, chapter 13 through chapter 14, verse 5. Uh, So please hear God's word. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapters 13 and 14 through verse 5. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies, and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, 
so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Crystal clear, friends? Do I even need to preach the sermon? I mean, it's just this. <laughs> so one of the things that we've been saying week by week that Revelation is trying to do for us, it's saying to us again and again, things are not what they seem. There is more to reality than meets the eye. This book is an apocalypse, and all apocalypses are trying to pull the curtain back so that you can see what is not normally seen, to reveal the invisible realities. And the point of all of this, remember, is not to give us new secret information about the future. The point of all of this is to transform our imaginations to help us be faithful in the present. John was a pastor. His job, his desire is to encourage his people to persevere in the midst of all of their pressures. And so what he's giving them is not a crystal ball. He's giving them a discipleship manual so that they can persevere. He, he wants their imaginations to be purged. He wants their vision to be clarified. He wants the curtain to be pulled back so they see despite everything around you, God is on the throne. The lamb reigns. Your enemy is real, but victory is coming. He wants them to persevere amidst the pressures. And so this is what we need too. That's why I think this book is so relevant for our moment. Now, last week we learned that we are in a war. John pulled the curtain back and exposed to us that all of us are in a war and not just any war, the great war that is behind all other wars. And he also introduced to us our enemy, that great dragon who he identified as Satan, the devil. Now, unfortunately, what we learned in this chapter is that he is not alone. He's got a couple of brothers couple of bros, and he stands at the shore of the sea at the end of chapter 12, and we see here that he now summons out of the sea these two great beasts, one from the sea uh, and one actually from the land, from the earth. And together, the, this threesome makes up what is sometimes called the unholy trinity, the unholy trinity, this, this force of evil 
that is arrayed against God's people. And so if you don't believe in monsters, you probably should. Because what this chapter is saying is that if you dare to follow the lamb, you are in a war with this threesome. And that they are doing everything that they can to lure you away from your allegiance to Jesus. So let's look at these beasts and what they're all about. Let's first look at who they are. Who are these beasts? Second, uh, what they want. And third, how you resist them. So first, who are they? Who are these beasts? Well, uh, let's just look at the text. Verse one, it says this. The, beast, the first beast had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. Now, immediately, if you know chapter 12, you should recognize this. What does this resemble? This resembles the dragon. It's like a mini-me of the dragon, right? He looks just like him, except there's some significant differences too. Verse two says, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear in the mouth of a lion. Now, remember this book, John is a master biblical theologian. Uh, this book is just drenched in Old Testament scripture. And this verse is just an obvious and clear reference to the book of Daniel chapter seven. Daniel seven was one, a very important chapter to the early church. Now, if you go back and read Daniel chapter seven, maybe do that later this afternoon or something. If you read Daniel chapter seven, you'll see that Daniel has a dream. And in this dream, he dreams about four beasts that come out of the sea. The first was like a lion. Mm-hmm. Second was like a bear. The third was like a leopard. And the fourth he doesn't describe, he just says it was really scary and it had 10 horns, all right? You see the imagery here? And then later in chapter seven, Daniel, this is a gift to us, Daniel interprets his own dream and he, what he tells us is that the beasts represent the pagan kingdoms, the pagan empires at the time, Babylon, Medes, Persia, and Greece. And so what John has appeared to do here is he has taken those four beasts of Daniel 7 and he has mashed them together to make this terrible ultimate beast into this beast that is emerging from the sea. So what is the beast of Revelation 13? John's actually making it pretty easy for us. The beast is a composite of worldly political power, kingdoms of the earth. It was Babylon and Persia in in, uh, Daniel's time and it is Rome in John's time. But it is really any and every worldly power or earthly kingdom that seeks to usurp the place of God. The beast is any empire or political entity or government that competes and resists God's rule and competes for a place of authority and power that is God's alone and demands allegiance. In Daniel's day, that was Babylon. In John's day, it is Rome. Rome was powerful. Rome portrayed itself as the zenith of civilization and human accomplishment. The emperor declared himself Koryas, which is Lord and King. And the whole world marveled at the power of Rome and thought it could never fall. So the first beast is worldly political power and arrogant human kingdoms. All right, beast number one. How about beast number two? The second beast is a little little different. It says he had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Now, what in the world is this beast? Well, at the time, remember, John is, we always have to look at the original context to understand the text. 
At the time, the Christians were living all over the, the world in Asia Minor in a place that was conquered and overtaken by this pagan Roman state. And so in every city and every town, there were little legislators, mayors, uh, priests of the pagan temples, and all of these elites and political rulers were seeking to curry the favor of Caesar and amass privilege and power for themselves. And so what they would do is they would build temples to Caesar, they would demand worship and sacrifices to Caesar, they called people to worship Caesar, they commissioned art for Caesar, they played music for Caesar, maybe they sold t-shirts and little bobblehead dolls of Caesar. They were essentially the propagandists for the empire. They were the marketing machine for the Roman state. So the second beast is the propaganda machine, the state, right? Embodied in those who use anything, images, religion, economics, culture, art, entertainment, cultural pressure to lure people in to the worship of the first beast, okay? So that's what John has in mind when he is talking about the first beast and the second beast. And you might say, gosh, Corey, that is really interesting. What in the world does that have to do (laughs) do with us? Well, this is actually really important, and it's very scary, because what John is saying is that behind the power of the beast is the dragon himself. Did you catch that? Look at verse 2. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and authority. Verse 4, people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. The second beast looked really cute, but what? He spoke like a dragon. So what John is saying is behind the beast is in working this terrible dragon. And as people were giving their allegiance to Rome and to Caesar and to the Roman state, John is saying they're actually worshiping the dragon himself. So he's saying something that we need to pay serious attention to. He's saying that evil actually works in and through the institutions and structures of the world to carry out the devil's terrible purposes. So the Bible's view on evil is actually way more nuanced than we often make it out to be. I think, you know, in the church, there, just at the risk of oversimplifying, there tends to be two really different ways of understanding how evil works. On the one hand, you've got the more conservative and traditional view that views evil as very personal. It's like the personal uh, presence of the devil tempting individual believers into sin, right? And that conservative traditional view tends to be suspicious about any talk of like systemic or institutional or structural evil, right? On the other hand, you've got the more liberal or progressive view that is very comfortable talking about systemic and structural evil, but gets very nervous talking about like a personal devil. They tend to interpret the devil as like metaphorical. So which is it? Which view does the Bible uphold? Class? Uh, Well, to quote uh, Jim Collins, avoid the tyranny of the either or, embrace the genius of the both and, (laughs) right? Embrace the genius of the both and. So this is why the Bible is so beautiful because, you know, on the one hand, the Bible teaches that Satan is a very real personal presence of evil who is seeking to pick Christians off through temptation and deceit, Uh, that he has a whole army of demons at his disposal, very personal. On the other hand, the Bible also teaches that evil is at work in and through the institutions and systems and structures of society. And these things that make up our lives, like government and law and culture, these two, because they're constructed by humans, are also involved in this great cosmic war between Satan and God himself. Now, to be clear, these institutions are good in themselves, right? Things like government, 
art, culture, these are good things. But yet, just like anything else, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, what happens? It becomes an idolatrous thing or even a demonic thing. And so government is a good thing. Government's a great thing. It's an important thing. But the authority of a government is what? Delegated authority, meant to serve the common good of the people. And so that delegated authority can be used for good and healthy purposes. For instance, Romans 13, Paul praises uh, the, the responsibilities of the state. It's carrying out God's purposes. That's a good thing. On the other hand, you've got Revelation 13, which is the other side. Always keep Romans 13 and Revelation 13 together, friends, if you want a nuanced understanding of government. That we can see delegated authority misused and abused, and therefore government can become demonic when it places its own authority and power over the authority of God and the concerns of God beneath it. So John is saying to his friends, look, wake up. Things are not what they seem. Rome isn't just Rome. Rome is a player in the drama, unwittingly participating in the cosmic war, pulling its citizens away from the kingdom. It is the beast, and the dragon is lurking behind him. You know, in 1932, during the rise of the Nazi party, there was a young Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he saw what was happening. He saw the way that the church was rallying around this leader and his nationalist agenda. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, how can one close one's eyes to the fact that the demons themselves have taken over the rule of the world, that it is the powers of darkness who have made an awful conspiracy. See, Bonhoeffer was seeing what other people weren't seeing. He, he was saying, look, more, than, more is going on than just the delusions of a power-hungry dictator. He's not letting Hitler off the hook. He's not saying that he wasn't responsible. He's just saying that in and through the state, evil is at work, and it includes this man, and yet it is more than this man that the presence of the dragon lays behind. And so what we we're learning from this first point, it's kind of scary, but it's saying that evil is far worse than you thought. That yes, the devil is at work to pick off individual Christians through personal temptation, but it's also that evil works in and through institutions and, and the powers of this world to undermine your allegiance to Jesus and draw you into destruction. Whew. Okay, so that's the beast. <laughs> oh, what are these beasts after? What do they want? Well, we've already answered that question a little bit, but what they're after is allegiance. Our allegiance, which is just another way of talking about worship. Let's just start by talking about this number, okay? The number in verse 18, 666. Probably the most well-known and superstitious number of all time. When I was a kid, adults told us that bands like Led Zeppelin had like put the number 666 into their music, but they recorded it in reverse, so it's sort of subconsciously entering into your brain. Um, you know, people get freaked out if, like, they, you know, the 666 is on the receipt at the, at the grocery store, or people do numerology, trying to assign numbers to people's letters and their names to see what celebrities or political leaders are somehow associated with the name 666. There's even a term for the phobia of the number 666. hexakoisoi hexaphobia. You might have that. Um, now, these theories are very interesting. I, I, I went too deep in the internet this week with some of these theories. But unfortunately, I think the answer is really not that dramatic or complicated. Remember, the, what, class, the first key of biblical interpretation is what? Understanding the original context and the author's original intent. 
And remember, John loves numbers. He's used numbers all throughout this in a way that communicates truth. What is John's favorite number? Seven, right? Seven. It comes up everywhere in this book. How many times is the name of Christ mentioned in the book of Revelation? Seven. How many times is the word scroll mentioned in the book of Revelation? Seven. How many times is the word the lamb mentioned in the book of Revelation? 28, which is seven times his other favorite number, four, which represents wholeness for the four corners of the earth. I mean, this guy's brilliant, right? Um, And so if seven is the number of perfection, six is the number of what? Greatest imperfection. It's almost there, just falls short. And it's repeated three times. Now, remember, if you're Hebrew or you're Greek and you don't have a big fat orange fluorescent highlighter, uh, the way that you super emphasize something is to repeat it three times. So God's is not holy, he's holy, holy, holy. And so 666 is the number of complete imperfection. It is the parody of perfection, complete incompletion. John says it's a human number, meaning that this is, a, this is human power in all of its corrupted pageantry. It is human power that always falls short, which never measures up, which always is tempted by demonic manipulation. I love what John Stott says. He says, this is the number that represents the completeness of sinful incompletion. But let's go a little deeper. Because verse 16 says, the second beast forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its names. Okay, gosh, there have been so many wild interpretations about what is the mark of the beast. Many people have believed that this this is a literal tattoo or a chip implant or an imprint or some sort of branding. For some reason, when I was growing up, people thought that like Teletubbies or Hello Kitty was like the mark of the beast. You know, I've I've heard um, recently people even mention like a vaccine or wearing of masks or something like that. Now, listen, listen. When we try to make the mark of the beast into a sort of a literal emblem, what we're doing is we are dishonoring, again, John's original literary and theological intent. John is a poet. Uh, the, The mark of the beast is not a literal emblem. It is a symbol. And it is almost certain here that John is referring with this to the ancient Jewish prayer called the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six. There, uh, God says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He he exhorts them to love their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. He gives them the commandments and he tells them to take them in. And then he says this, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. This is a symbol of devoting your whole self to the Lord and, and devoting all of your thoughts, which is symbolized in the head and devoting all of your actions, which is symbolized in the hand. It's a symbol of your allegiance to Yahweh, the true God. And John plays on this earlier and in chapter 14 when he talks about God's people with a seal of the lamb on their foreheads, which is a mark of their belonging and allegiance to the lamb. And so you see this mark of the beast isn't a microchip. It's not a secret implant. It is a symbol that refers to false allegiance, distorted worship, misguided loyalty given to someone other than the living God. And this is really the crux of the issue. I want y'all to really hear me on this because this is really what this chapter is about. John is giving his friends a severe warning. He is saying, do not give your allegiance to the wrong Koryas, to the wrong Lord. This war that we're in is at heart a war of worship. 
It's a war of allegiance, who we are trusting in to give us security and provision and protection. And he's saying to his friends, who will you give your allegiance to? The true and living God or the beasts? They're promising you protection behind whom lies the power of the dragon. Have you noticed all the the counterfeiting that the beasts perform in this chapter? Uh, We saw it in the counterfeit trinity, mimicking Father, Son, and Spirit. We see it with the, the counterfeit mark, counterfeiting the mark of the lamb. Verse three, we see the beast has a fatal wound that has been healed and the whole world marvels. Well, what other figure in the Revelation has a fatal visible wound over which the whole world marvels? The lamb. Verse seven, the beast has authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Who else had all authority over every people, tribe, tongue, and nation? The lamb. The second beast has two horns like a lamb. It speaks like a dragon. The beast is mimicking and counterfeiting the true and living God to draw the people of God's, their allegiance away from the lamb. And this is what idols do. This is what false gods and counterfeit gods do. They promise to give you what God alone is ever meant to give. This is what John is worried about for his friends. This is the greatest threat to the church, not persecution not imprisonment, not beheading or burning or death. The greatest threat to the church then and now is complacency and compromise. He sees well-meaning Christians who are afraid and scared and weary and tired, and he just sees them kind of giving in. It's not like Caesar was asking them to stop worshiping Jesus. You can worship any god you want in the Roman pantheon. And many Christians were probably thinking, well, you know how great it would be to have the protection and the security and the safety and the provision of the Roman state. All we have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And John calls this idolatry. He sees this as false worship, literally a worshiping of the beast. People were looking to the state, looking to Rome to give what God alone can give, security, stability, safety, provision, identity. They were worshiping a counterfeit God. How about you? How about you? See, idolatry doesn't mean that you're like going to a temple or putting little pagan figurines on your dresser at home. Idolatry is about the heart's allegiance, the heart's trust. So who do you turn to when you're afraid? Uh, What do you turn to for help when you find yourself in trouble? The counterfeit gods promise to give you what God alone can give. It's so easy uh, to look back and to judge the German people um, and to say, you know, how could people who are so smart, I mean, these are the people that, you know, J.S. Bach and Beethoven and, you know, they make BMWs. I mean, how, how could people so smart get tricked into following a madman like Hitler? How, how did, to, to quote the title of that really fascinating book by Christopher Browning, how did ordinary men Uh, become complicit in a killing machine. Well, you know what? Read Revelation 13. Because this is how it happens. What what did Hitler play on? The fear of the people. He played on their fears and their insecurities and their vulnerabilities. He promised safety, security, and power. To quote him, Hitler, he promised a turkey in every pot. He promised what God alone could give them, security, significance, identity, and strength. 
Revelation 13, perhaps more than any other chapter in the Bible, shows us how dictatorial regimes come into power by playing on people's insecurities and fears. But let's shine the light in ourselves, all right? We've always got to come under the authority of God's word and shine the light in ourselves. This explains a lot what's happening uh, in our country today and the confusion that the church finds itself in. I was in a church years ago, a few years ago. It wasn't our church. It was another church. And it happened to be an Independence Day weekend. And I remember the pastor saying in the sermon, America is the world's last great hope. Now, the sentiment behind this was a good sentiment. It was patriotism. Patriotism is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a good thing to love your country. But just like we said before, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idolatrous thing. When we look to any human institution or any human state or any human nation to give what only God is meant to give, ultimate hope, security, salvation, then we have crossed into what John calls the way of the beast. And I I see this happening today. We've elevated country or government or elected officials or leaders. We've exalted our human systems and group identity over God. We too are complicit, brothers and sisters, on the right and the left in walking in the way of the beast. This explains, I think, why we see uh, double standards uh, and blatant hypocrisies on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, We're willing to overlook almost anything, all kinds of immorality and corruption, as long as our side can be in power or we can regain power. The church is complicit in this. In a culture that is drunk on power, we worship power too. And what's, what's most revolting about it is that we do it with the name of Jesus on our lips. And I believe that John is pleading with us, saying, what way will it be? Where will your allegiance be? The way of the dragon or the way of the lamb? The way of worldly power or the way of suffering witness? It's clear to me that the church is having a serious crisis of identity. The church in America is right now, and it is a crisis of allegiance. It's a crisis of where our trust lies. We may say Jesus, but much of the way that we are acting speaks of the way of the dragon. The main problem I believe facing the American church today is not an economic problem or a free speech problem or persecution problem. It is a worship problem, a problem of our hearts, of our allegiance. This is what evil wants. So what do we do? How do we resist this? Well, I've heard that when federal agents train to recognize counterfeit bills, um, they actually don't study the fake ones because there's just too many iterations. They study the real ones because they want to become so familiar with the real bill that they immediately recognize any fake, any counterfeit. And so how do we resist the lure of the beast? How do we resist counterfeit gods? By worshiping the real God and by focusing our eyes on the reigning lamb, the true Koryas, the Lord. And that's what we see happening in Revelation 14, 1 through 5. In contrast to all those from the nations who've been deceived by the beast. There we see the lamb with his people around him with his seal and the name of the father on their foreheads. In verse four, there's a reference to virginity, which again is a symbol. The Bible loves sex. It's very positive about sex and marriage. Uh, This is a metaphor again, because throughout scripture, adultery is used as a symbol of idolatry and false worship, giving ourselves to the wrong gods. So they have pledged their allegiance to the lamb. And I love this phrase in verse four. It says, they follow the lamb wherever 
he goes. And where did the lamb go? He went to death. He went to suffering. He went to sacrifice. He went, he, he went to the cross. And, and so we resist the beast by knowing the lamb, by worshiping the lamb, by following the lamb, by going the way of the lamb, which is the way of suffering love. So how do we do that? Well, just two closing thoughts. First, we worship the lamb. Part of that is what we're doing right now. Every week when we worship God, friends, it's why it's so important we do this even in pandemic conditions, that every week when we worship God, uh, we're not just coming to church, we are practicing resistance to all false gods. Because every week we got bombarded with them, the, holy, the unholy trinity, right? And we're tempted to put our trust in money and power, uh, in, in uh, political leaders and the military, our careers, our family. And, and, and we're tempted to make these things ultimate things rather than the good things that they are. And so we come every week to practice resistance together. God calls us into worship, reminds us of our true allegiance. We are given opportunity to confess and repent our idolatries. We're given forgiveness and we're renewed in our allegiance again to the Lamb. So let us continue to worship the Lamb. And then second, we go the way of the Lamb in everyday life. You know, this chapter and really the whole book is putting a choice before God's people. Will it be the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb? The dragon looks mighty. He looks powerful. The lamb looks pathetic and weak, but behind one is the power of evil and behind other is the power of God. So know the lamb and know the way of the lamb so well that you can immediately recognize a counterfeit way and that you follow the way of the lamb even unto death. So let me just close with some thoughts here from a very interesting book that came out a couple years ago called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And I'd like you to reflect on this. How do you know if you're following the dragon or if you're following the lamb? The way of the dragon is the way of fretting and scheming and turning over scenarios in your head. The way of the lamb is the way of surrender and prayer, turning over your problems and emotions and surrender to God. The way of the dragon is personal strength, desiring power, control, resisting weakness. The way of the lamb is owning your weakness, knowing that God's power is made perfect through it. The way of the dragon shuns the cross, shuns suffering, shuns death, always seeking to deliver yourself. The way of the lamb is the way of the cross, knowing that the way of life always passes through death into resurrection and accepts daily costly deaths to sin and self. The way of the dragon looks to the self for strength. The way of the lamb looks to God alone for strength. The way of the dragon hates being in the valley, always wants to escape the vulnerability of the wilderness. The way of the lamb always passes through the valley and knows the wilderness is the place where God is humbling your pride. The way of the dragon is the way of pride. The way of the lamb is the way of humility. The way of the dragon is the way of vengeance and retaliation that wants others to suffer for the pain it has caused you. The way of the lamb is the way of costly forgiveness, adding to your pain by absorbing the pain of the others wrong against you. The way of the dragon insists on your own way. The way of the lamb surrenders your own way. The way of the dragon is the way of envy and selfish ambition. The way of the lamb is the way of gratitude, cheering for others even as they surpass you. The way of the dragon seeks your own glory, wants your name to be remembered. 
The way of the Lamb lives for the glory of God, and the only name you want remembered for your life is the name of Jesus. So the war is real. The crisis is acute. Will it be the way of the dragon? Will it be the way of the Lamb? What way will it be for us? What way will it be for God's people? May it be the way of the Lamb. Let's pray. We just take a moment to address the Lord and whatever he may be stirring up in you now. Lord Jesus, you are the lamb and you love us. The dragon does not love us. The dragon wants to destroy us and despite all of his promises of power and privilege and protection, strength, and all the deceits uh, that he gives us. We know that he's out to destroy, and yet the lamb, you, the lamb, you love us, and you have let yourself be destroyed um, for us. And we pray, God, that this week as we combat um, this unholy trinity, that you would keep us faithful, keep us wise, keep us looking to Jesus, worshiping Jesus, following the way of the Lamb, even when it is so hard. We thank you for your um, Holy Spirit who gives us power that we need to do what we cannot do on our own. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.